0: Alright, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We spoke about a lot last week, the best verse in the Bible, or at least the most famous one in the Bible, John 3.16. And uh, we spoke about what it means to really have faith. So, uh, I know that was a lot to really digest throughout uh, the last Bible study. If you have any comments, or questions, or th- Things you still didn't uh, grasp, feel free to ask or just uh, share any thoughts that might have been lingering since last week. Anything that's still confusing, we might be able to finish chapter 3 today, so we'll, uh, we'll continue to move at the same pace, but we'll see where we go. All right, so we'll start with John 3. And we'll read verses 16, 17, and 18 together. But like I said, we already covered verse 16, but we'll just uh, read it in the context of these next couple of verses. All right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All right. So, if you notice in this little section, there's a word that may be translated differently in the edition or the translation of the Bible that you have. Okay, and that word is judge or condemn. Okay, you see that in verse 17 and 18, also in verse 19, uh, although we didn't actually cover it in this little section. But in some translations, you'll see, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Right? And uh, in 18, it will say, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe has, has already been condemned or is condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Anyway, so I want to talk about this word a little bit and what it means and why it takes on a different translation and different versions of the scriptures. So, the Greek word here is krenetai, which comes from the verb krino, which literally means to judge. Okay, so the Greek is krino, which literally means to judge it's translated as condemn because judgment always implies a discernment between good and evil okay when you're judging you're separating the good from the evil the right from the wrong okay so there always has to be a division this is precisely what we see when Christ talks about the final judgment that he'll separate the sheep from the goats Right? And the sheep will be on his right and the goats will be on his left. Right, So that judgment always implies a separation. So with that separation, there's either a vindication or a condemnation. Like when you're judging, you're vindicating or condemning. You're assigning good to one side or evil to the other side. Okay, so anytime there's a judgment, there's always an implementation of justice. And if there is justice, then the evil or the wrong is naturally condemned. There is no justice without a condemnation of the evil, right? And we know that here, when the scriptures speak of judgment, especially as it pertains to the world, it's primarily one of condemnation because the world is in sin, right? It's in corruption. The, the, the world is in its fallen state, right? So that's why you even see this word translated as condemnation or that he didn't come to condemn the world even though it's technically that he didn't come to judge the world, right? So Christ is telling us he's here to save. He's here to redeem, the judgment, which essentially leads to the condemnation of the sinful, is for another time. That's in his second coming. Right? But for now, he's coming to save and he's coming to redeem. Okay, any questions about this word and the primary purpose of the incarnation, why he's here to to minister and to share the the good news, the news of the gospel. There's like a silly little song that we always sang as children. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. it says, He did not come to judge the world. He only came to save. You guys ever heard of that? Okay. Well, I guess he didn't have much of a childhood. <laughs> Anyway, so this is the the essence of the Incarnation. This is primarily why Christ came. Not to judge, and of course with that judgment is a condemnation for those who are living outside of the truth or living in darkness as we'll see in the following verses. But he came to redeem, he came to save. Right? Now, of course for anyone living among the Jewish nation this is offensive because they want justice and the Jews feel like they're in the right place, they're living in righteousness, they're God's chosen people okay so for Nicodemus to hear that you know Christ is not coming to judge and to condemn is a bit of a bummer like what do you mean, what about the Romans, what about all the outcasts, like, forget revenge, at least, like, give us justice, right? So this is totally radical for any Jewish person to hear. And it even implies that the one who believes escapes this condemnation because there is no judgment For the one who believes. So now it's not even about your ethnicity or your ancestry. It's not about having Abraham as your father. But anyone who believes. So Christ is opening the door. It's wide open to anyone. Whether it's a Jew or a Gentile. Whether it's a Roman or a pagan. It doesn't matter. He's saying if you believe you have salvation, okay? You escape this condemnation, right? Now, we are intended to reflect Christ, right? We are intended to walk like Him. And if God didn't come to judge or condemn, who are we to do that, right? Who are we to come into this world, whether you... Think of the world as your own workplace, your church, your family, wherever you may be. You enter into this place and your objective is to judge. That's completely different from the purpose of Christ and His mission. So I want to take a moment to reword this verse right here, okay? I want you to look at verse 17 in this way. For God did not send his son, and then insert your name right there, God did not send his son, well, pick on Sammy, right? So God did not send his son Sammy into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Sammy may be saved. And everybody can insert their own name right there. Think about that for a moment. I know it's a silly little practice, but insert your own name in this verse. And for the women, just modify it a little. For God did not send His daughter into the world to judge the world, but that the world through, insert your own name again, might be saved. This is the purpose of our existence here is to be a passage for God's love and to be a channel for His salvation, to extend that invitation to the rest of the world. Right? And this is a lot tougher than it sounds, but this is what we have to be striving to do. Okay? When the sin is present, we become completely corrupt. And when this sin is absent, we become completely perfect. Like that sin of judgment makes the world's difference. It'll make it or break it for you. So if you remember the story of Abba Isaac, when he saw a man that was committing a sin... And like he caught him red-handed, like he knew what he was doing. It wasn't a mystery. And so he judged him in his mind. He condemned him in his own mind. An angel appeared to him and said, The man you judged yesterday has died today. Where would you like me to place his soul? And of course, Ab Isaac was ashamed. He was shocked that like, this is the message that he's hearing from an angel. And obviously, like, embarrassed. And then the angel said, You see, God has shown you how serious a thing it is to judge. You must never do it again. That's how serious it is. Like, who are you to make yourself out to be God? As if you can dictate the destiny of this man's soul. Okay? I would have to say that this is probably the number one reason people leave the church. When they walk in and they don't feel loved. They don't feel welcomed. They feel judged. Right? And then, it's funny because it's like a cycle. That same person that felt judged, now walks away from the church saying what? They're all a bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) Everyone just sits in church judging me. And they're judging each other. And they're all a bunch of judges sitting on their throne. Okay, well, now you become another judge yourself, right? It's cancerous. It just spreads like wildfire. And so the moment we just let it creep in, it totally removes us from the path of love. And we no longer serve as a channel for God's salvation, right? Again, God didn't send His Son, me or you, or anyone that you know into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world, but that through you the world can be saved, through his work in you. Not that you're the Savior, but he'll use you as his Christ. Okay, But we have to recognize that this is the most serious sin to entertain. Abu says, Nothing angers God so much or strips a man so bare or carries him so effectively to his ruin as culminating, condemning, or despising his neighbor. Nothing is more serious, nothing more difficult to deal with, as I say repeatedly, than judging and despising our neighbor. Okay? But I don't want to just scare you and leave you with the the warning of like this horrific sin but the exact opposite is true as well when it's absent we become like the angels it's like a one way ticket to heaven so you remember the story about the monk that just lived a lazy life and never really went to the midnight praises and once in a blue moon when he would go he'd be half asleep and never really read his bible much he was just like a mediocre guy and so it finally came to the end of his life and he's on his deathbed. And, you know, the tradition when a monk is dying that all of the brothers would gather around him and they would comfort him and support him and pray for him as he's departing. And so they notice that his face starts to look concerned and he's worried and he's like mumbling And then, all of a sudden, he has this big smile on his face, and his eyes light up, and he looks, like, totally peaceful and cheerful, they're like, what's going on? And he explained to them that the angel of the Lord came and showed him all of his sins, and that someone with a record like him is not fit to enter into a pure place like paradise. And of course, this is whenever he was worried, right? But then, like, he's explaining that he responded to the angel and he said, yes, but the scriptures tell us, judge not, and you will not be judged. Sure, I'm guilty of all of these things, but I've never judged a single person my entire life. And the angel said, ah, that's true. And ripped up the scroll, his record of all these sins. And that's whenever he was comforted. I, I don't want to just like fantasize or r- romanticize this this sin or this virtue of love but it really is that serious. When, when it's present we become impediments or obstacles to people's salvation and when it's absent when we don't have this judgment and when we're truly loving and accepting we become like angels. So all is either lost or gained whether we judge others or whether we don't judge others remember the the tax collector and the publican just differed in one thing one was doing all the works and giving tithes and fasting and doing all that but because he judged the man next to him he lost everything and the publican just Prayed with humility, he didn't judge, and he gained everything. Right? Any comments or questions before we move on from this concept? Hmm. I have this this one with means uh when you say that rules or you see something wrong, you know, not judge, but you have to say that rules or have to say that other people or even by yourself, you know not judge even in the man that you said before Right. Yeah, well, the scriptures tell us to judge a righteous judgment. So, the act of judging itself is not evil, but it's the condemnation that comes with the judgment. So, if I see someone smoking weed, I can say, that's bad. And it would be absurd for someone to tell me, oh, you're judging. You're condemning this uh, behavior or whatever. Like, heck yeah, I'm condemning the behavior because it's wrong. <laughs> a sin is a sin. Right? And I can do that without compromising an ounce of my love towards this person. And I think that's the challenge. To hate the sin but love the sinner. Okay? And we have to really practice this. It's an art. And we have to grow in both. Like as we mature, we hate sin even more and more and more. But we realize that we're no better. We're the worst of the worst and we are sinners ourselves. So we, we have no trouble loving the sinners because we're no better. So we grow in our love for our neighbors regardless of what they're doing. Right? Mother Teresa would always say, if we judge others we're too busy to love them right so we're not judging the person but we can judge the behavior and to judge the behavior and to denounce the behavior doesn't mean that i have to publicize it like when i say i hate this sin is to have this internal conviction or this internal rejection of the sin, even if I don't say a word about my hatred towards the sin. Right? Like I don't have to say what you're doing is wrong, what she's doing is wrong. And as a matter of fact, the people of the church should lean towards a more silent approach towards their condemnation of sin, and you leave that burden to the pastor, like myself. Like, I have to be the one that carries the burden of telling people what they're doing is right or wrong. Right? For for you guys, it's a lot easier. You just love and accept one another. And so long as in your heart, you are adamantly opposed to sin, you're adamantly opposed to violence, you're opposed to envy, you're opposed to deception, you're opposed to all of these sins, even without having to vocalize it, then you're rooted deep down in your heart. Okay? <laughs> well, that's, that's good too. When, when you feel guilty about judging someone, that's your spirit probing at your conscience. So you can repent. But you should have no guilt in denouncing a sin. And if you are guilty about thinking this behavior is wrong when it really is wrong, then there's a different problem altogether. Okay? Okay. So, any comments or questions? if all sins are the same, how come we emphasize that this is more serious? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is more serious because this is like at the very heart of love. Like, the very core of the virtue of love is whether I embrace you. Like, I can't possibly love you if I judge you, if I condemn you, right? But... I can love you if, you know, I'm struggling with other things. Like, maybe my faith isn't that strong, right? But it's not going to impede my love for you as much as any sort of envy I have towards you or judgmental thoughts that I have towards you. And whenever that judgmental attitude is absent, it's easy to, to love. Right. Okay? Uh, Any other thoughts, questions? Well, nobody said you shouldn't have any feelings or any frustrations or like e- even anger towards someone who's hurting you. <laughs> but you can love despite that. You don't have to like the person. We could love the person. Yeah, like for example, husband and wife, they always fight. Yeah. Sometimes I'm really mad with him, but I don't But you can you can love with those frustrating emotions and even that anger still like boiling inside. Because love is not an emotion. Love is an action. So I can do the works of love while my heart is just frustrated. You know? I can forgive even though... Deep down inside, I really don't feel like it. And so I put my will in front of my emotions, not that my emotions are driving my will. And I think we should do our best to align our emotions and our feelings with our will and our actions. But as human beings, we're often divided. And that's a natural condition in in our humanity. So... When we're divided and our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings are all scattered, we can either wait until all of that aligns for us to walk the path of love, which typically will delay any progress and sometimes cripple our efforts altogether, or we can just put our will ahead of all our feelings, all our emotions, and do the acts of love, do the works of love. And then what you'll notice quite often is that the emotions and the feelings will inevitably follow. So if you feed your enemy, often enough you'll find yourself growing in love with your enemy. That's the concept behind it. And that's precisely why Christ commands us to love our enemies. Not so that our enemies are changed, even though sometimes they are. But the real purpose is that we become transformed. Right? The, the transformation is within us. And that's why we're commanded to love our enemies and to forgive those who offend us and persecute us. Because we need this path to be transformed, this path of sacrifice and surrender and love. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, like, where's, how do you navigate that and, like, just not judge everybody? Yeah, like, that's tough. Like window, <laughs> right? like, yeah. We yeah. were literally just talking about this. Uh, Joe and I and a couple of the guys at the mm-hmm. dinner last night. You feel like the whole world is, like, falling apart. And everybody's just falling off the deep end. And sin is just raining on a pedestal, and people are not just condoning it, they're just promoting it as if they're the heroes of the world. And as long as we ourselves are rooted and we're not filled with that bitterness, then the light will always overcome the darkness. But the the objective of like satan's temptations are just to like plant seeds of bitterness and that resentment and not only will you fail to help the people that are on the wrong path but you yourself will be lost as soon as that seed of resentment is rooted in your heart so i don't worry much about changing the world, but changing myself. And then that will happen uh, according to God's will, and it will cause these rippling effects. And you will change your church, you will change your community, and sooner or later it will affect others. But I, I guess that's, that's the only control we have, right? Because like, all we're responsible for is our, our own heart. You look like you want to say something. Side um, word, like I'm going to sidetrack a little bit. You had mentioned um, it is your burden to carry on correcting other people, but aren't we as Christians also called to do the same as the struggling people? Yes, but not in a formal sense. Like to me, I have to keep everyone in line. Like uh, the, the word uh, episkopos, like. Uh, Bishop is to be the overseer right like i'm i 'm the teacher in the classroom right you guys are responsible to direct one another towards Christ and to do that by guiding by by encouraging sometimes you can challenge each other but like it's a it's a little tougher for the congregation to do that among each other because it's It's a sensitive matter. People get more defensive when uh, their brother is uh, correcting them as opposed to their father. Because like the father, okay, that's your role. You're supposed to be the disciplinary man. So you can definitely do that with your friends and especially when you're doing it with love, yeah, you have the freedom to. Um, But I want to just absolve everyone from like the need to correct all the problems in the church or in the world you know i'm not absolved of that which is the burden i have to carry <laughs> a lot of good comments and questions any other comments <clears throat> okay so let's get into the next couple of verses but before we discuss verse 18 in that last section we just read let's read 18 until 21 so we'll read the few verses after just to look at it all in context he who believes in him is not judged but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. All right. So, verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged or is not condemned. Because he who believes... Escapes condemnation. Okay? But how is the one who believes in him not judged? And how is it that he who doesn't believe is judged when Christ clearly said, I, I didn't come to judge the world? Okay? So how is the, the one who doesn't believe already judged when we just said there is no judgment like he didn't come to judge right so how is the one who doesn't believe already judged what do you think Okay, so that's definitely how we consider Christ. Like, he is our salvation. But in terms of his people, all of humanity, right? We see that there are ones who don't believe. And he's telling us here that these who don't believe are already judged. Even though we just concluded he didn't come to judge the world... But now he's saying that the ones who don't believe are already judged. Hmm. Somebody raise their hand right here. Okay. Sammy. say that they under the law and they're Okay. So you're heading in the right direction. You're not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> Okay, Okay. so there's a big connection with the light as well. So, okay, let's put it all together. He didn't come to condemn anyone, but if you're already aligning yourself with the darkness in the world, then you yourself have placed yourself outside of the light. It's like this self-inflicted condemnation. You're putting yourself in darkness. You're judging yourself. You are placing yourself among the goats. You're placing yourself on the left hand side. Right? So he didn't come to judge but there are people who don't believe. They've rejected the light. They don't want anything to do with the truth. They're living in their own subjective world. Okay? So they're placing themselves in darkness. Okay? They are condemning themselves, okay? So St. Augustine basically explains it like a physician who came to give medicine to the sick. And if you choose to reject the medicine, you're hurting yourself, right? It's like a self-inflicted punishment, okay? So it's not the physician's fault. But you yourself are causing your own judgment by deciding where to place yourself. because the light has come into the world because the standard Christ has come to to set for us the model of perfection okay and so the way St. John Chrysostom explains this as well he says that the one who doesn't believe in the light chooses to put himself in darkness and alienation from the light is a self-inflicted punishment or condemnation Okay, so just like what we've been saying. And then obviously, in in verse 18, he says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And we spoke about what that actually means, to believe in the name. Like you're aligning yourself with the identity of this person. What this name stands for. A lot of times we just throw the name of Jesus around like it's nothing. Or, or you'll even hear people conclude their prayers saying, In Christ Jesus' name we pray, Amen. As if now that I said His name, then my prayer is completely valid. right? But to pray in His name, to live according to His name, is not just to say His name. Of course, you can say his name at the end of the prayer and it's meaningful, but I'm I'm saying the simple act of verbally vocalizing a name can be totally useless. Does that make sense? But the real question is whether the prayer is in line with the name, whether it's according to his will, whether your life identifies with the name of Christ as if it models his name as if it models the life that he lived okay so that's why he says he that he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God they haven't believed in the life and the model and the path of the only begotten son of God okay that's what the name entails but I won't say much more about that because I know we discussed it earlier any comments or questions we we'll get into verse 20 and 21 so how do you guys feel about the truth I know it's a totally vague question but it was <laughs> okay <laughs> So that's a good thing, right? Okay, the truth can definitely seem subjective. Uh, it's what people make it out to be. Um, so the way Mina Gadalla explained it, it's purely a good thing. Like you would have a loving relationship with something that sets you free. Okay? In the Confessions of St. Augustine, he talks about how He has a love-hate relationship with the truth. It's very interesting. So he says, people love truth when it shines on them and hate it when it rebukes them. Okay? And I'm pretty sure we can all relate to that. The truth is your friend when it's on your side. Like whenever you're walking in the truth. And yeah, the truth is great because I'm in the right place. But if I'm in the wrong direction, the truth is no longer your friend. (laughs) Because that's going to be precisely what rebukes you. Okay? So, I think we have to consider the reality of truth and the dynamic nature of truth as what sets us straight. And we have to value the truth for what it actually is. And we have to value the truth whether we're walking in perfection or not. Like, I'm not always living in the truth, but do I always value it? Do I care about the truth a little less whenever my life doesn't reflect the truth in this area? Just to kind of satisfy my feelings? Or do I say, like, you know what, I have to be honest. The truth matters, and... Right here, I'm out of line. Right here, I'm compromising. I'm being lazy. I'm not showing love. And the truth demands that I live this way. Right? Regardless of my adherence to the truth, I value it as the principle that governs my life. Okay? And uh, if you've read the Confessions of St. Augustine, like, this is fundamental in his transformation. Like this is what like galvanized his whole change. It was this commitment to the truth. And when the truth rebuked him, he took it. He took it like a man, turned around and followed it. Okay? So we also have to ask ourselves if we hate the light, right? And this is what we see here in verse 20 because everyone practicing evil hates the light, right? So we have to ask ourselves if we hate the light because it exposes what's lacking in our life and convicts us. A lot of times that's why we hate the light because just as the truth rebukes us, the light rebukes us, okay? It exposes our hypocrisies and confronts us by demanding a change in our life. It demands that we redirect our path. Okay, so St. Tronchism says, there are some so relaxed, so powerless when it comes to virtue that they remain infatuated with wickedness until their dying breath. So I was saying, basically, there's a bunch of people that don't care about the wicked life that they're living. They're just lazy and they feel powerless. They don't care to really live a virtuous life, okay? He goes on to say, since the profession of Christianity requires a sound way of life besides right doctrine, like since Christianity requires a certain set of behavior, aside from just a certain set of beliefs, those people are afraid to come over to us because they would rather not have to live a righteous life. Okay? So... What's he saying here? There's a lot of people who choose not to believe simply because they can escape the burden of the change that their faith would require if they were to believe. And you'll see this with people that just argue about you know, their interpretation of what the Bible says here, or just argue against Christianity in general. Despite all of the evidence and the proof or whatever, they know that to believe in, in God or to believe in what the scriptures say, then I have to live according to this way. So what's easier for me to say and to at least validate my rejection of this path just so at least I can walk away and say, look, I'm not being hypocritical. You say I don't it's not true. Right? So because it's not true to me, I don't believe that the Bible says confession is essential. Or the liturgy is essential. Or prayer is fundamental and the scriptures are the foundation of my spiritual life. So if I don't believe that those are essential components then when I'm not doing them I'm not a hypocrite I'm doing nothing wrong right just like like you ever have an argument with somebody about physical fitness like diet and exercise and like they know that having a healthy diet actually matters but they'll tell you like "Ah, that's not really important Because they just don't want to follow a diet. (laughs) Because they know if they consent and, and, and they agree to what you're saying, they're going to actually have to change the way that they eat. So what's easier to say? Oh, like, you can eat whatever, it's not a big deal. See what I'm saying? You have to come to a place in your life to just forfeit your own opinion, your own logic, your own rationale and say... This is the truth of Christ. This is the light. This is the path that God and the church have set for me to walk. And I'm setting aside all excuses. Okay? And I'm walking down this path. Any comments or questions? Okay, so the light exposes the actual reality of our life. It exposes the truth. And exposes reality because there is an absolute truth that serves as a standard. And we said that the truth is Christ. He is this perfect model. He is the standard that models the, the right path. And that he models the way to walk. And so when you have a standard, then you can distinguish based on this model, what's in line with it and what's not. That make sense? So, the light exposes the evil because it's confronted by an ultimate truth, which is Christ. Okay. Without a reference point, how do you know if the direction you're going is right or wrong? You always have to start with a reference. And this is why the liberalism in this world is just, taking us from one evil to another. There's no reference point. There's no moral compass. So, because Christ is not the center, we can fabricate our own version of the truth. Okay? But we know what a straight line looks like because we have Christ. Okay, so this is what C.S. Lewis says. This is how he puts it. As he was transitioning from atheism to Christianity, he said that my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Okay, so he only recognized the injustice in the world because he recognized what real justice looked like. You can only recognize the sins in your life when you compare them to Christ. You can only recognize the darkness in your life when you look at the light of Christ. Otherwise, you're just like all the elementary kids that come and ask me, Abuna, is this a sin? Can I have a girlfriend? Is this right? Is that wrong? Like, you know, it's just like an immature walk through life. (laughs) Oh, that's the filtered version. (laughs) Okay, so you only know how crooked a line is when it's compared to a straight line. That's, That's Christ. Christ is that straight line. He's that model. He's the truth. And you know if you're walking along the truth, whenever you look at the life of Christ. And the saints who also walked in his footsteps. Okay? So, we'll go on to last verse in that little section. Verse 21. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, That they've been done in God. Okay. Notice the. The contrast between. Those. Who. Practice evil. And those. Who practice the truth. Like those who do evil. Hate the light. Okay. But those who do truth. Come to the light. So there's a clear dualism between evil and truth it's like the antithesis of truth is evil so it's like lies are no different than evil itself because that's the opposite of truth okay and it's not like truth is just a state truth is not a quality But it's an action. That's why he says here, he who does the truth. Like what do you mean? How do you do the truth? Is it a thing you do? Absolutely. It is a thing you do. It's the way of life. Okay? So it's an active part of your life. It's not just something that you just sit back and do passively. Right? We spoke about the truth as Christ several times in the first chapter of the Gospel of John okay? chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 he says in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness and the darkness is not comprehend it and that a little later the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glories of the only begotten father full of grace and truth For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, so he is the light, he is the truth. Okay, so you see this connection between truth and light. Okay, because truth actually exposes. The truth is what discerns between what's right and wrong. Just as when you turn the lights on in a room, you can see what's there and what's not there. Okay. So there's this characteristic of revelation hidden within truth and light. The truth reveals just as light reveals. You see what I'm saying? The Greek makes this very clear. When you look at the word truth in Greek, it's aletheia. It literally means to uncover, like to expose, which is precisely what the light does. Right? When you turn the light on, you see what's actually there. It's not... Covered in darkness. Okay, And we know that this is inherent in Christ. In the nature of Christ. He is the truth. He is the light. He is the one who reveals. You don't determine what's right and wrong. What's good or evil. Just through a psychological analysis. You don't look at biology. You don't look at sociology. Sure, that's important. But... Where is the center of your reference? It's Christ. Right? So, I'll just end with this concept because I know I'm out of time, and this was really heavy on my heart last night. Like, I just saw this new law that was passed in uh, Colombia that abortion is now decriminalized at the 24th week of pregnancy. It's almost into like the third trimester. Like you have a 60 to 70% chance of actually surviving when the baby is delivered at 24 weeks. Like it's already heart beating, lungs are somewhat developed, like all the organs, they're there. Like this is a real life. Okay, but what validates everyone's fight and their conviction that it's important to have the rights for abortion it's because they don't consider this fetus a real life okay so what do we do we look at the biology and look okay at like two weeks or at like six weeks or at however many weeks it has a heartbeat and then It can survive on its own, or what are the chances that it can actually survive whenever it's delivered? Do we say that, okay, at this point, it's really a human being, and we never look at truth from this sociological or biological perspective. It's Christ, and what he defines for us as life and sanctity of life and what he defines as a real marriage between a man and a wife. What he defines as a real family. What he defines as the unit existing in a church. That's our standard for the truth, not what the world says. Okay, And of course, we could look at all of that with the, the psychological aspect. And we can take into consideration... The physiology, the mental health, the sociology, and all of that. But we always start with Christ as the truth. Christ as the light, the one who reveals and exposes what's right and what's wrong. Okay? Once we do that, then we can find common ground. Okay? And then we can actually start to look at our life because that's where the truth starts. It's not about just looking at the world. And condemning the, the opposition to the light that exists in the world. But to condemn the darkness in my heart, that's where it starts. Okay, so we'll pick up with that concept next week. But I just wanted to stress this because that's the heart of our spiritual walk. To walk in truth, to walk in light and to recognize Christ as a reference point, to recognize Him as the standard, the one who determines how to live, the right way to live. And He is the one that has the final say. Not our opinions, not our perspectives, not our feelings, but Christ Himself. Okay? Comments, Questions? Yes. Yes. And then on Sunday during the fast, there was a line that said something about paying the debt. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You missed last week. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's good kind of, because we spoke about this in John three sixteen. Okay, but I'll give you a quick little recap because. When the scripture says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life he's telling us that the purpose of this gift for God to give us his son as a gift was not to condemn the world and it's not to fulfill this retribution that you know maybe satisfies the, the anger or the wrath of the father or whatever. It's because he loved us and redeemed us out of his goodness. Not because he owed the father anything and not because the father was angry or just like this monster that like had to punish creation for the sins they committed and then the only one that can possibly bear this punishment was Christ and so he took it out on him and that's actually what western theology preaches okay but when we say that he paid our debt we say that he paid it to the condition of our humanity okay so he didn't pay the father anything because it's not like a transaction for an angry god like he's not giving the father a payment and that would be a very cruel way to understand the father and he's certainly not paying it to Satan because you can't claim that he held us captive. Right? Like that would that would be to put more power in Satan's hands than he actually has. Right? And then to also think that God would surrender his creation into the hands of the enemy is to render God powerless. So it's not like Satan possessed us and if he even Go back to Job. He had to go and ask God for permission to tempt him. God still puts parameters on what Job can do. He says, sure, you can do this and that, but don't touch his soul. So God still had the power, and it wasn't like we were toys in the hands of Satan. But this payment, and it certainly was made because we say that Christ is a ransom, and a ransom is a payment. But it wasn't to the Father, it wasn't to Satan. It was to the condition of our sinful nature. So he paid this payment to death itself as if you were to give death an anthropomorphic personification. Like if you were to look at it in that sense, to personify death, as if the one receiving the payment, because that's a condition. Death is a condition. So he gave that payment to the condition of our death. And then in exchange for our death and our corruption, he gave us his life and salvation. Okay, so that's why we, we consider salvation this exchange. His death and his life is uh, the transaction that that he made to save us. All right, let's all stand to pray.